The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful for what you've given us in Scripture, but particularly today as we begin a section on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we just come with great expectation. Uh, This is one of the greatest, uh, the peaks of Scripture, and one that demands our great attention and great faith. And so we pray, Father, that you would uh, humble us before your word and uh, endow us with the ability to, uh, to hear, to study, and to, um, to obey. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so uh, green sheets are out. The, uh, the um, scripture handouts are out. For those who are watching uh, online, we welcome you. You just need to turn to the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 in your Bible or on your tablet or whatever it is. All right, so today um, we, have, we have seen, we know that in Matthew, the first half of Matthew, Matthew 1 through 16, uh, that uh, Matthew is making the case that Jesus is the Christ uh, and he is the fulfillment, that's the big theme that we've been talking about, the fulfillment of all that God has been working towards in salvation history. So identity was really the theme of Matthew 1 through 4. Uh, identity, genealogy, incarnation, Jesus as the new and perfect Israel, particularly uh, out of Egypt I call my son. Uh, so we see Jesus as the one who is called out of uh, Egypt after, his, um, after they fled after his birth. And then baptism through the water of the Jordan and into the wilderness just as the uh, Israelites came out of the water of the Red Sea and into the wilderness. So there's a lot of identity imagery uh, for Jesus. Uh, the second half of chapter 4, which we talked about last week, that's sort of the bridge, the gathering of the Messianic community, and Jesus begins his ministry. And then from here to the end of 16, we're dealing with authority, the authority of Jesus. Does he have the authority? Does he carry the authority, speak the authority, bear the authority of the Messiah? So uh, Matthew has five major teaching narratives, and the most well-known, the most famous, is the one we're beginning today, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me ask you, what do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to assume that you have read it, uh, because even if you're not a a Bible scholar, chances are you, at some point in your life, you have read the Sermon on the Mount. What do you know about it? What do you think about when you think about the Sermon on the Mount? Beatitudes. You think about the Beatitudes. That's what we're talking about today. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah? What else? Maybe you know less than I thought you did. (laughs) All right. And feel free for folks, y'all can chat in and tell me. I'll do my best to get to that and read if you have have an idea of what you think of. What somebody said? What what was it, Ray? Loaves and fishes. Loaves and fishes. Well, that's not part of the Sermon on the Mount, but he did do that right there, right, right nearby. The Mount of Beatitudes is right by the where he did the loaves and fishes. So it's all the same setting. It's all the green grass and, and, and all of that. So that's, uh, I can see why we would um, sort of associate those things. That's right. Okay, well, let's, um, let's kind of jump in. And, and what I want you to see is that we can't read the Sermon on the Mount apart from the way that Jesus began his ministry. How did he begin his ministry? What did he say when he began his ministry? Do you remember? 
If you have a Bible, you can look back at verse 17 in chapter 4. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember? That's how he began his ministry. He comes back out of the wilderness and he begins to go around preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about this last week, but what does it mean to repent? Turn. To turn around. Not just clean up your act, quit doing bad things and turn around, but actually turn around from trusting in your own abilities and tr begin to trust in God. Um, many assume that repentance means get your act together, right? Stop doing the bad stuff. You know, Jesus is coming, look busy. That's, that's you know, the bumper sticker. Um, and, and so, clean up your act because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which, essentially, if you were to clean up your act because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you're saying, save yourself. Save yourself. Right? Make good. There's a, um, if that's true, why, do we, why would we need the cross? If, save yourself. You can't save yourself. Right? So, so repentance must not mean save yourself and clean up your act uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If it's just to get us from a D- minus to an A+, plus, then the cross would have varying degrees of utility. It would be, uh, it would get me from a, a, an F plus to an A plus. It would get K from a C minus to an A plus. You know, that would be, um, but, but, uh, would I, and, and then in heaven, K and I would, K would kind of have, I hold, hold that over my head. So, um, uh, we don't need to compare. We will not need to compare who needed Jesus the least in heaven. We all need him uh, exactly the most. Uh, Luke 13, if you think about it, there's a passage there, so it's kind of obscure, and Jesus, they're asking Jesus about uh, what, how, do you, how do you make sense of the fact that the Tower of Siloam, which we don't know where that was, uh, that it fell on 18 people and killed them. How do you make sense of that? And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So if we think of repentance as, unless you clean up your act, you will all likewise perish, that is not good news, is it? Um, Repentance is not reformation. Repentance is self-judgment. Judging yourself to be in need of a Savior. When we do things that we need to repent of, we've not acted as if we need a Savior. We're now judging ourselves to be in need of a Savior. Um, so again, not going from bad behavior to good behavior, although that is very important. Please don't hear me say that you shouldn't do that. But repentance is going from the attitude of not needing God to the attitude of desperately needing God. Judge yourself think, Judge yourself to be in need of a Savior because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That makes a lot more sense theologically. right? Unless you acknowledge your sin and your need of a Savior, you will all likewise perish. Again, that just makes a lot more sense when you think of repentance uh, in that way. So Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist also called out to his crowds, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were baptized by him in the river and they were confessing their sin. They are coming to the end of themselves. Repentance is the recognition that on our own before God, we need a savior because we have no means of solving our sin problem. So, and repentance is a lifestyle. It's not a one-time thing. I repent a lot more. I judge myself uh, to be in need of a Savior much more now than I did when, than when I became a Christian 31 years ago and a half. So, because, you know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And, um, and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal when I was 15. I mean, I wanted to accept Christ, but I was, 
boy, I know a lot. I see myself a lot more. I'm pro- hopefully I'm better, like objectively, but boy, I'm much more aware of it. All right. And the reason we need to judge ourselves to be in need of a Savior is because why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? The presence of God. The place where God is sitting on the throne. So our job, part of what repentance is, is kicking ourselves off the throne in our hearts and putting Him back on the throne. And that is a daily uh, activity. And maybe a minute-by-minute activity. Um, And so the Sermon on the Mount is not saying, here's how you repent. But it is a description of of the repentant life given to us by the King who is now at hand, right? The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the repentant life. It is specifically for those who have repented. We see in our uh, passage, His disciples came to Him. For those who are following Him, come to Him, and this is who who He speaks to. The Sermon on the Mount is a disciple's portrait. It is a description of the way of life that all who have subjected themselves to the kingship of Jesus will strive for. It does not say this is what a real Christian looks like because a real Christian looks like a sinner who knows their need of a Savior. This is what we as sinners in judging ourselves to be in need of a Savior strive for. Um, and ours is not a religion of morality, right? It's not if you get it, if, you, if you've done this, then, then you can become a Christian. It's, it's, it's one of grace. So again, we see even here, Matthew says that he went up on a mountain. So we have the new, sort of this imagery of new Moses. Recalls, if we're paying attention, recalls Sinai, uh, Jesus, uh, Moses going up on the mountain. Jesus elevates the law uh, and he places us in need of a Savior. So, what the Sermon on the Mount does is it encourages godliness in, um, for believers, and it drives unbelievers who read it to despair, like, I can't possibly do this, and then repentance. That's what it does. That's what the law does. The law. So, this is going to be a lot of how you should live. It is not good news. Good news is relief. So, the law diagnoses the disease. And the gospel provides the medicine. Martin Luther said that originally. So the gospel and the law says, uh, here's what you should do. And we see, oh my gosh, I haven't done that. Or I can't do that. Or I won't do that. The gospel says you are loved anyway and you have a Savior. So not the Sermon on the Mount finally is not live like this so you can become a Christian. It is because you're a Christian. Now let's try to live like this. Does that make sense? Following with me? Tracking with me? Okay. I think the Bible I have is not exactly the same version as as this, so I'm going to read it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Here's that Moses imagery. He sat down. That's what a rabbi does when they teach. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs... The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Boy, that's, I tell you what, we, we love the Beatitudes. Why do you, why do you, what do you like about the Beatitudes? What do you, what do you, just devotionally, when you think about the Beatitudes, you come across them, what do you? Hope. It provides hope? A lot of hope. A lot of hope, yeah. Change your attitude. Change your attitude. That's why I call these the B attitudes, right? <laughs> the, these are the B. These are the attitudes you're supposed to have, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. What else? God's mercy. Pardon me. Mercy. God's mercy. God's mercy. That's right. God's mercy. So I used to think that the Beatitudes weren't really for me, because I mean, look at me. I'm not really poor in spirit. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not walking around mourning all the time. Isn't it nice that God has this for those people, whoever they are, bless their hearts. Um, that's what I used to think about the Beatitudes. Now, Sue's laughing at me because Sue's much wiser than I was, <laughs> uh, and still much wiser than I am. But, um, but what I have come to realize um, is that, of course, these are for me. These are the ones... In fact, you are blessed. If you want to be blessed, this is where you want to be. I also used to think that these basically were unrelated groups of people. There's poor in spirit, there's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's those who mourn, there's, you know, it's just, it's just kinda, he's just kind of knocked off a bunch of groups. No, these are intricately related to one to the other. And it is, in fact, a progression of spiritual maturity for the repentant Christian heart. And we will, we will walk through that progression uh, in this class. If you are following the Beatitudes, your life should increasingly look like a portrait of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And they are the key to understanding them. So everyone, a beatitude it comes from the Latin word for blessed. In, in Greek, it's a different word, makarios. Um, but that's where we get like the beatific vision and, and all this. the same word, beatitude. It just means blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? We, we, um, if all of you, I know you're very savvy social media people. You see hashtag blessed a lot. Um, Sometimes that just doesn't have any regard to an actual Orthodox faith at all. What does it mean to be blessed? More than you deserve. More than you deserve, certainly. Certainly. Been shown grace. Pardon me? Been shown grace. You've been, gr been shown grace. Yes. Yes, y'all are theologians. What else? 
hard to, it's one of those words like holy that's hard to define it without using the word. You know, well, holy, what does holiness mean? Well, I mean, uh, holy. It's holiness. It's, uh, it's hard. Um, blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, some translations uh, say happy. Uh, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Not the way we use the word happy. Uh, or fortunate. I've seen that before. It, it, to be blessed is, is um, to be the privileged recipient of divine favor. Be the privileged recipient of divine favor. But it's not like sitting at the bottom of a waterfall where it's just gushing all the time. It's not exactly like that. So it's um, happy, again, it doesn't seem quite right, but it's happy in the sense that it's a quality that others commend and, um, and, and, and desire for themselves. So you're in a good spot, maybe. We kind of use the word joyful that way, but, it, but all, even then we have to distinguish. Do we mean joy that's uh, sort of like happiness, like super happiness, or joy that is uh, underlying regardless of circumstances? We have to qualify that. So I think one thing, one way to think about blessedness is that spiritually you're on the right track. You think about a train track. Spiritually, it's like, a, you're, like, you're, like the, you're like a car of a train. Jesus is the engine, right? The Lord is your engine. He's pulling you along. But, but you're on the track, so you, know, you recognize where you've been and where you've come from. Um, and and, and what, what tunnels you've been pulled through. And you know you're right where you are, and you know where you're headed. You're headed in the right direction, a particular direction. You have a final destination, right? So that is one way to think about blessedness. You know where you've come from. You know where you are. You know who your engine is, and you know where you're going. So you're, you're blessed. You're on the right track. This is you're where you want to be. You know if a train gets off the track, that's bad news, right? So we want to be on the right track. All right, so you're on the right track if you're poor in spirit. Thanks. <laughs> that doesn't sound too, like such great news, right? What does it mean? Do you know? Have you thought about it? What is it? How does it, when you just read it initially, what do you think? Somebody who has maybe a little belief, but not a strong belief. Dabbling in the belief. Okay, so dabbling in in belief. They got a toe in the water of belief. You know when you you go to the pool and you put your toe in, it's like, oh, this is so cold. When you get your whole body in, it's like, oh, this is so nice. You're just dabbling. You got a toe in. That's good. That's good. Is um, maybe you've lost some of your faith, you're wavering. Dry spell. Dry Dry spell, wavering in your faith. Good. I like that. So I kind of think of it as sort of a sad sack. You're sort of a pitiful soul. And maybe you don't think of it that way, but just poor in spirit, just bless their hearts. That's kind of what I think about. it's not, uh, Luke's version actually says, blessed are the poor. Um, but in, ter- in, the, in, the, in the range of the, of the, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's not a homeless person. It is someone who's come to the end of themselves. This is the starting point. If you're, if you're familiar with the um, Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12-step programs, the first step is you, you realize your powerlessness. Yeah? What does he mean by spirit here? 
use different words in its place. Yes. So what does he mean by spirit here? So you're poor in your own spirit. You you are not confident that your spirit is acceptable. This is the remember, this is the repentant spirit. And so this is someone, I don't think it means a ghost ghostly spirit, but it's sort of your own um, countenance, your soul. Uh, you're poor. You're poor. You, you're impoverished uh, in the sense that you are repentant. You're, you're no longer relying on your own strengths, your own merits, your own achievements. You're not, not really relying on your family name, uh, etc. Um, someone who's poor in spirit knows it can't do it on its own anymore. They've tried it. Can't do it. I don't know. What, I don't. This, this, poor in spirit is the prodigal son waking up in the pig slot and saying, "I need my father." That's poor in spirit. And it's the first step for repentance. Would it be neediness? Neediness. Not in, yes, absolutely, poverty. I mean, it's not, but not in the financial sense, but in a, in a spiritual sense. Not in an emotional sense, like, you know, somebody's emotionally needy. It's, a, it's, we realize we cannot save ourselves. Our self-salvation projects that we are constantly uh, adhering to are, have, We've seen their bankruptcy. And we're poor in spirit. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because we have a Savior. Like, that's, that is, um, we found the Savior. That's why theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because we come, you're ready to know Jesus when you know that you can't save yourself. Now again, that's a lifelong deal. You know, I'm always relying on myself. And, and you probably are too. But, Every day. That's what we talked about in the sermon today. Every day. We are uh, knowing that we have, we, um, we're dying to ourselves. Now I've got, a, I've got a chat here. Let's see what we got. I'm put it in the chat. It, fir- it affirms, Morgan says that it affirms that no one has to be perfect. You're right. You're right. No one has to be perfect. No one is perfect. And so blessed, you're on the right track if you realize you're not perfect. You realize that you're at the end of yourself. Hopefully you don't have to hit rock bottom to realize that. Sometimes rock bottom can be a great blessing. But uh, hopefully, I, mean, I, I, I don't want my I want my kids to recognize that way before rock bottom. You know, yeah. I want to save them from that. But if, if they hit that, then God God will use that. But there's the kingdom of heaven because because now now we're ready for a savior, right? So the next one is then blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The re- re- repentant spirit who has found their Savior, now mourns their sins before a holy God. And I think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is the the calling of Isaiah. And he he says that, uh, I saw the Lord see... So he's like, comes into this vision. Isaiah is going to be called as a prophet. He has this vision. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. And seraphs, seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, and they, um, and they were flying around, calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord uh, Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth. His foundations, the foundations of the doorways shook at the sounds of their voices, these angel voices. The temple was filled with smoke. I mean, this is, incredible picture of holiness and majesty that Isaiah is given this vision and he falls down and he says, woe is me for I am ruined 
Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, or the Lord of hosts. And I think of that because Isaiah is, uh, comes into the presence. So the kingdom of heaven is his. He comes into the presence of holiness. And, and what naturally happens is he sees his own unholiness. And he mourns his sin. He's never really thought about it before. He's always tried to live a good life, but he suddenly sees it for what it is. He's the prodigal son, and he uh, was it, he, he was caught up in, in uh, wine, women, and song. Or he's the elder brother, and he's caught up in self-righteousness. Most of us got a little of both. I do. But you know, when we come before the Lord, we see... His holiness. Again, that's what the law does. The law describes the holiness of God. We're coming to His presence, and all of a sudden we think, oh my gosh, I have, I have fallen so short of the Lord. And those who mourn their sins will be comforted. Why? Because their Savior is at hand. The King is at hand. He's right there. The cross has paid the full price. Now, of course, I recognize that Jesus' original audience wouldn't have gotten that yet. But he's preparing us. So there's now, therefore, uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the comfort for those who are mourning their sins. You think about the prayer of humble access, which we do in uh, right one. Somebody asked me, why don't we do it in right two? I mean, it just made my day. Um, uh, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. And I, I, I was so delighted to hear that this person asked, couldn't we just put it in ourselves? We print our own bulletins. And I said, yeah, Lent, man, we're going to do it. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Right to prayer and humble access. And maybe forever after that. Okay, so now we should be comforted. Number um, Verse 5, number 3, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, we, the receiving of such grace, the comfort when we, of God that for our salvation, we, re- we uh, mourn our sins. We get comfort rather than condemnation. It creates humility. And humility, it, you know, you don't increase, yeah, I'm, I'm going to really try to be humble today. Oh, I did it. Hey, good job. Yeah, but you know, that humility doesn't come by trying to be humble. It comes by uh, humiliation. And it's um, the best way to get like that, uh, to get that is like Isaiah, to continually stare at God's holiness and continue to receive the comfort of His grace. But don't 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 go to great lengths to get humiliated. Uh, you know we've all been there probably. But um, but just look at the holiness of God and be overcome with both your need for a savior and the grace that you receive. And it's incredibly humbling. And so meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humility. It's a reliance on the strength of God's redemption. We trust. God's redemption, like a rock climber, trusts the rope they're hanging from. Right? thousand feet up, no problem. This rope's going to hold me. Um, so that is uh, meekness. And those who are meek shall inherit the earth. What? What does that mean? Why will the meek inherit the earth? It's a subversive way to power. Actually... The way, the way up is, is down? What, was it, what is he talking about? It's not 
It's not the way to material reward. It's not the way to true power. Uh, it, is, it is to say that there's no limit as to what can be gained or accomplished when one relies solely on God's strength with a humble heart. There's no limit. Now, some people, their name, you know, it's, I don't know if you ever read that book, um, In His Steps, Charles Sheldon. I don't agree with everything about that book, but people decided uh, that they were going to start doing what Jesus did. And some of them lost everything. And some of them, their names were made great. All of it was just, now we're just going to let Jesus choose. Right? We're not scrambling. Um, we, um, we, we're not scrambling for power. So recently I read, and I could not find where I read it. So I, forgive me, but I'm, so I'm just going off memory. But it says that we all seek the power of a president or CEO or celebrity, something like that. And it's and some people are like, no, I don't want that. Well, I, I, I know what you mean, but, but on our, in our own little small worlds, we still seek that. We want people to think we're great. And, and, and it is not, number one, celebrity is not likely to happen. Um, but when it does, there are precious few who maintain their sense of self, their morality, their, their humility. But, but what this author said was that, that the power of someone like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham is always available to us. Great prominence, not by raising themselves, but by lowering themselves. Power, that kind of power is available to you and me every day, and we don't want it. We don't want it because it's, it's unlimited in its scope and impact, but it requires great sacrifice. The meek will inherit the earth. There's no limit to what God can do through us when we come to Him in meekness. So, when we're not prideful anymore, I mean, of course, we're always battling that, but if we're not prideful anymore, we're seeking, we're not seeking for ourselves, we're, but by grace, we now want to be like our Savior. So blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's what we want. And all starts with repentance. And you don't, like, move from one of these to the next. You just, you sort of accumulate all of them. You don't graduate. I used to be poor in spirit. Now I'm mourning. You don't, you just, we... We gather them, and they become increasingly um, like who we are. You're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna um, hunger and thirst for righteousness if you're not also poor in spirit. But if you're initially poor in spirit, you may not yet be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. All right. So you're um, instead of hungering and thirsting for fame or power or wealth or comfort or ease, our new wealth. In light of the sins that we mourned and the grace we perceived, our new wealth is righteousness. <coughs> we want to stay at a place where we are uncomfortable without the Word of God. We are uncomfortable without the Word of God. Without the assurance, without the uh, present experience of God's grace. We're uncomfortable without that. We want hunger and thirst for a life that honors our sin. We want to long to come into Christ's presence and please Him. We're not, we're not pleasing Him to show off. For he, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We will hear that one day. We're doing it to honor Him, to glorify Him. We're hungry and thirst for righteousness. Why are we be satisfied? We'll be satisfied if we be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's giving us His own righteousness. So, we're progressing. And I wonder, 
Um, again, righteousness is like humility. Don't focus on being righteous. Focus on Christ. Just focus on Christ. He'll make you righteous. Because you are righteous. You're a saint. That's what we talked about. If you haven't been to church yet, come to church. We'll talk about that. Has, has His grace, and this is not for you to answer necessarily, but, but I want you to think about it. Has His grace shaped your life? Has His grace shaped your life? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you? That's the question, not again, not for you to answer now. And some of you will say, yes, I do. Some of you say, oh, I don't know. We're all where we are. So again, the prayer of humble access. His property is always to have mercy. We're not worthy so much as to gather crumbs under His table. His property is always to have mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've hungered it after the character of Christ. We're renewed by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we shall be like the one whose property is always to have mercy. If we're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, it will make us mercy. Because we're repentant. We're not holding it over. We're not saying... Because it starts with the repentant and humble heart. Because we're meek, we're not saying, well, I'm repentant. What's your problem? (laughs) That's actually not repentance. That just shows we need repentance. It's like a flywheel of grace. You know, the flywheel just starts slow and gains momentum. We're awed. When we're awed by the grace we've received, we desire to be givers of grace ourselves. And and we're spurred on even more knowing that uh, not, not if we fall short, but when we fall short, because of the cross, because His property is always to have mercy, we will again receive mercy. So it's this, it's this perpetual cycle and it's this flywheel. And it's very hard to mourn your own sins and not see someone else's sin and say, I know what that is. I mean, you know, when you're sinned against, you're going to get, you're going to get upset, of course. But I find the, the more I understand grace, the more I become sympathetic rather than angry. Or quicker I am to move from anger to sympathy. Not always. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're running out of time, but an impure heart is not simply unclean and dirty. It's compromised. It's divided. It's unsure. It's undedicated. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, "Purity of heart is to will one thing. To will one thing." So it's dedication to Christ. That's purity of heart. And so focused is this heart on the pursuit of Christ alone that we will see God. We'll see God jumping off the pages of Scripture. We'll see God working in our uh, life and uh, active in our prayers, working in the world around us, um, at present in our families, however it is. We'll see God working because we, are, uh, we, have, we will one thing, and that is to pursue Christ. And still more, we pursue the the promise of heaven. And that's and we will see there, God there face to face. So the next step is to is to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. You're on the right track. Remember? You're on the right track. For they shall be called sons of God. Not peacemongers, not um, peace at any cost. This is not merely settling family arguments. 
or participating in anti-war activism. It's good to settle family arguments. Probably good to do anti-war activism. But 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. We're reconciled. That's what we have peace between us and God. So the blessed, blessed are the peacemakers means blessed are those who are helping others to see now that they have peace with God. And they shall be called sons of God because we are identified with the Son of God. So we're merciful, we're pure in heart, we're oozing the love of Christ. And, and, it, and effectually, effectively, this is evangelism, I think. Because we're sharing our whole selves with those around us with humility and mercy participating in his reconciling mission as agents of his peace. We're offering the end of enmity between God and us. So we're proclaimers of the gospel. You might be it as a preacher, but you might be it as a great next-door neighbor. And that's a great way to be. And then we get to the one where we actually hope, I ne we never want to be this mature, uh, right? Blessed are those who per are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We actually do want to be this mature. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're back to poverty of spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But now we're relying on Christ's strength. We're engaged in the battle between God's righteousness and Satan's evil reign. And I wonder if you've ever experienced persecution. If your faith has been uncomfortable to someone. Not because you were a jerk about it. Because that's a different thing. There are Christians who are jerks and then say that they're persecuted. No, you're just a jerk. That's not, that's a different thing. But the message of Jesus. Do you ever wonder why you could go on a chat board and you could you could write up, you know, the words of Buddha and everybody thinks that's really precious, but you write the words of, words of Jesus and people tell you you're. I mean, they're so angry about it. Why? Because Jesus is offensive. Why is he offensive? It's not because he proclaims love. Everybody likes love. It's because he's the son of God. And he wants to own your life. Don't seek out persecution. But we should be open enough with our faith that it sometimes agitates the unbelief of people we come into contact with. Our neighbors, friends, family. We have a... Remember, we, we're, we're not, we haven't left humility at this point. We're still humble. So, it's about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And we're able to see that. So, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's about Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I don't know that I've gotten to the place where I can rejoice and be glad when someone reviles me because of my faith. Maybe. But the reward is not because you got persecuted, it's because of your faithfulness to Christ. Okay. I'm out of time. There's a lot. Y'all can talk about it, talk amongst yourselves. Next week, salt and light. You, it's who you are and who I am. So, uh, verses 13 through 20. Sign in, write on your sheets, leave those for Mr. Josh right here. We'll, uh, you can just leave them on, on the table, and then we'll pick them up.
God bless you. Go to church. Thank you. Thank you. Three things. Yeah. Is the gospel the same for all saints as it is for baptism? Uh, I it, yes. So it's marked. Okay. One patent, one priest, right? Because he's not here. And the baptismal font, we left it where it was standing. Okay.